Welcome to Apple Soho in New York. Please welcome this evening's moderator, Kim Roots from TV Line. Hey guys, American Gods fans. Are you ready for this? This is gonna be so good. I'm so excited. I'm Kim Roots, I'm from TV Line. Um, tonight we are going to talk to the cast and creators of American Gods on Stars. Yeah, you can come on. They're right there, they can hear you. Excellent. The show premieres Sunday, April 30th at 9 o'clock. And um, I believe we're going to watch a trailer right now. So let's do that and we'll bring them out. What's a god? They're real if you believe in them. So who are you? You wouldn't believe in me if I told you. This is my man, Shadow Moon. He does not know our world. I'm easing him in. You've gotten yourself mixed up in some really weird shit, Shadow. Yours forgotten, as unloved as any of us. I'm doing just fine. We're trying to start a war. We're at war already, and we're losing. Who's after you? Times, they are changing. We need you to fight them, to show them who we are. They are gods, for God's sake! So what's the plan? War. Deliver me. Deliver me. None of this feels real. It feels like a dream. Things are never going back to the way that they were. It will be glorious when or lose. Deliver me. All right, let's bring out the casting creators of American Gods. all know who these people are. Neil Gaiman, author of the book, EP. Woo! Michael Green, next to him, executive producer and creator of the series. Yeah. You see David Aki, she is, plays Bilquis, the goddess of love. Brian Fuller, creator and EP. Come on, flower crowns. Loud there might be some fanables in the crowd tonight. Ricky Whittle, plays Shadow Moon. And Ian McShane, who plays Mr. Wednesday. All right, so just in case, who's read the book in here? Okay, good. So just in case you haven't, or you read the Spark Notes or something like that, uh, American Gods, and I'm doing this now as opposed to before so that I can get the annotated version from the, literally from the man who wrote it in case I mess anything up here. So please feel free to interject. Is about a man, Shadow Moon, who gets out of prison and kind of gets yanked into a war between the old gods and the new. Courtesy of Mr. Wednesday down there, a very cunning and charming mysterious man. Did I get that right? You got it, babe. All right. <laughs> he called me babe and I'm turning red. That's so ridiculous. <laughs> It's ridiculous. Oh, this this panel's already done, gone down the tubes. All right, so the cast also includes Jillian uh, Anderson, Orlando Jones, Crispin Glover, Pablo Schreiber, Delmore Barnes, Cloris Leachman, Emily Browning, Dan Cook, Kristen Chenoweth, and a bunch of other awesome people. So let's get this underway with something a little deep. American Gods is about a divided country, a divided America. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> 
Who knew? We might be in a similar situation now, which you couldn't have known when you wrote the book, or maybe you could have. But talk to me about the parallels between our current political climate and social climate and what is going on in this book. Am I, over, am I reaching too far here? I, I don't think you're reaching too far. I do think it's very peculiar, um, for actually peculiar for all of us, that a book that I wrote uh, 17, 18 years ago and that Michael and Brian wrote scripts for two to three years ago and um, that we filmed a year ago now feels ridiculously prescient and appropriate and like a political statement. When, when I was writing it, I didn't think stating that this was a country of immigrants and that was a good thing was actually a political statement. I didn't think that having a racially diverse cast of characters in my book that represented and reflected America was a political statement. It just seemed like the kind of thing that looked pretty damn obvious. Um, and now the world has gone a little bit mad and it all seems like we are making a political statement, and we are. But that wasn't where we set out from and where we set out to go. But here we are. <laughs> was there any, I mean, was there, any, once you realized what was happening, that you, there was this synergy happening, was there any, change, were there any changes that were made? Any points that you wanted to make a little stronger? Uh, there weren't any changes so much as it was an increasing awareness of what we had gotten ourselves into and the the uh, canary in the coal mine was uh, Orlando Jones and the scene that starts episode two, which takes place on a slave ship. And it is Mr. Nancy telling uh, the, the black men in the slavehold what awaits them in America. And, and what awaits them in America for the next few hundred years. And hundred years after that, and a hundred years <laughs> after that, and and it uh, was so moving because the cast of black men who were playing the slaves in the hold, after Orlando did the first take, they stood and gave him an ovation, and wow. uh, that's when we thought, oh, we were just working on a story, and we wanted it to have emotional impact, but we didn't realize how deep it had struck. Wow, so, so I know that a lot of the, in the book, Shadow is kind of, he's mysterious. You don't know what his origins are. I know that that was very important to you guys. And Ricky, you said no one knows what I am anyway, so. No one's got a clue. <laughs> I mean, I asked my mom, she hasn't got a clue. <laughs> don't print that, she will kick my ass. <laughs> Sorry, mom, I love you. So the, the the Shadow and the Mr. Wednesday characters, nailing those castings, super important to this show. Can't work without it. But originally, I heard that Ian was considered for a different role. Talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, no, well, Michael and I had worked together before on a, on a short-lived but beautiful series for NBC called Kings, but that's what you get working with a network. Thank you very much, Michael. And... Uh, then Michael and I kept in touch over the years, and then he sent me this script last year and sort of said, Chernobog, this character. And I read it and I thought, 
There's a load of actors that could play this part a lot better than I could, but, you know, and I got back to Michael, I said, it's very nice of you, Michael, but I love the script, but, you know, Chernobog, why? And he, I said, what about Mr. Wednesday's more interesting? And he said, well, I didn't think you'd be interested in doing another television series. And but I give said, me five minutes. What? Well, I'm, I'm condensing the story, Michael, you know. <laughs> Putting it down so you can have your bit, but it's pretty much in line, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't know Fuller then, but I know his, knew his work, and uh, I think they've just created a... They've done Mr. Game and Proud. Listen, they're both very creative people, Michael and Brian, and they've expanded upon his blueprint for a television show and made it something I think he's proud of and we're all proud to be proud of. And I'm glad I didn't do Chernobog because Peter Stamar is fucking amazing as Chernobog. And I'm not bad as Mr. Wednesday, but, you know, it's been a fun time. Thank you. <laughs> And Ricky Whittle is, actually, Ricky's got the most difficult part in the show. Because his character, as you said before. You. What, love? Because oh, I've got to work with That's you. That's one thing, yeah. But there's a, a deeper thing is the fact that you, you know, you represent the audience. The audience looks at the show through Shadow's eyes. And Shadow is a very sort of passive character in a sense. He doesn't, he's not proactive. Unlike me, who takes him. So Ricky's got to react to everything all the time. But he's actually quite wonderful at doing that. And of course, he has a wife who in the script is, and actually in the book is not as, is not as, she's important, but not as, um, not as big and real prominent. Thank you for the word, yeah. As she is in the movie. And that's one of the gifts that Brian and Michael brought to it. They've made Laura, you know, the, this wonderful character who is his wife and the reason why he wants, you know, she, well, I won't go into it. Let Ricky carry on. <laughs> No, go on. We're good. I just don't like it. That's all. <laughs> Starting brawls at the Apple Store. It's your day. Uh, we're going to talk about that scene because we have to talk about that scene. But in a minute, we're going to get we're going to get a little a little meat with our dessert. But um, I wanted to talk to you. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> is you know uh, where does actors. that even come I don't, from? I don't know. Um, so <laughs> sounds wonderful. <laughs> something of substance before the February. Um I'm just censoring and I'm censoring. Be good. Be good, Brian. Again, with the turning purple. Um, so Bilquis is the goddess of love. She, uh, she is very demanding that she be worshipped. She needs to be worshipped. And uses the sexuality as her power. That's, would you agree with that? That's the source of it? Well, I would say it's more about deep human connection and then a great need to be seen and to see each other fully. But yeah. <laughs> a really deep human connection. <laughs> That's why I'm sitting on the end. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Um, we were talking a bit backstage. You grew up in Nigeria. Right. And uh, can we talk a little bit about how the way you were raised and how women were seen as you were growing up differs a lot from this character and how, what you bring to it with that, you know, informing it? Right. It's, it's actually interesting because there's, there's several different parts to that. It, it depends on what generation you're a part of. Uh, the, the older generations, I think, um, pre-colonialism have a very different relationship to the body and to sexuality. Um, but after colonialism, there's a, at least where I was raised, there was definitely a much more conservative view um, about the body, uh, about sexuality. And uh, I, it was interesting because in, in getting this part, it was the first time I had a conversation with my stepmother, who's <laughs> Very conservative. Uh, you know, she's like, okay, walk me through this. What are you about to do? You and, might want to sit. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but then it turned out to be 
an hour-long phone conversation where we, we well, yes, an hour long, um, where we talked really frankly about uh, intimacy and, and sexuality and um, what it meant to me and what it meant to her. And I remember putting that phone down very calmly after that conversation and realizing that is the first time in my life that I ever had that conversation with my mother. And it, it was a profound moment for me. Um, and it, it made me think, you know, if, if this was the kind of conversation that could happen on any level after, after this viewing, I would, uh, I would feel very lucky to be um, part of that. It's uh, the, the scene in question, which you guys know, her first scene, um, there were photos released of it. Uh, everyone knows what happens? Okay, excellent. So I don't have to say it on camera. No lady eats man vagina. No one has a clue. There we go. Um, but I was re it was basically shot. it's just meat before dessert. <laughs> hey, when that shows up in Neil's next book, I'm going to demand a royalty. Um, so, so shooting the scene, you guys had to use different techniques to to make some angles look bigger, some look smaller. What? <laughs> There's no good way to explain this. Everything's gonna sound like a double entendre. So, um, can you guys talk a little bit about the actual shooting of that scene? There were doubles and triples and such? Uh, I mean, as much as there is a lot of filmmaking that went into it and digital effects, the most impressive thing is performance. And that was Yatide bringing depth, sensitivity, integrity to the role. Um, one of the things I'm most looking forward to is people seeing what comes after that scene because as shocking as it is, as wonderful as you are in it, the things you do after that are my favorite things in the series. So uh, you're, you're going to meet an actor who goes well beyond just the, the stunning and unexpected way you meet her. Um, <laughs> but yet, uh, when you read that part for the first time that we met you, and that scene was her audition scene. Uh, and it was... <laughs> She was professional, I was like this. Um, <laughs> but uh, what we saw there was uh, vulnerability in a role that people have taken as just cheek. And we could see years with this character as a result. So yes, very expensive filmmaking, uh, some incredible design work on David Slade, our director's part. He storyboarded it out because it's a question of, okay, how do we get the man in? Um, and still All make the way. It yeah. <laughs> Uh, slowly, and um, uh, and also the the, the actor who plays opposite Joel Murray, who is amazing. Uh, unfortunately, only in one episode because of <laughs> <laughs> because of the way things finish, um, and uh, the the games of proportions to make it seem believable. Um, but it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. I'm very proud of it. What was the toughest part to cast in the entire cast? Ricky. Ricky. Really. Shadow. And uh, I, I actually learned something today that I hadn't known because I mentioned in an interview that I had seen almost 600 people auditioning for Shadow. And uh, Michael said there were actually 1,200. Yeah, you only saw the... Uh, they only showed me the good ones. <laughs> I mean, so Ricky beat out 1,200 people to, to become <laughs> Shadow. <laughs> and... And in order, and in order to do that, we, we made him audition about 16 times over about a period of, what, six months? It's about five months, yes. Um, 
It was possibly the most intense audition process I've ever been through. I felt like I was in American Idol. Every <laughs> week I, I sang a different tune, a happy scene, sad scene, Wednesday scene, a, a Laura scene, a Mad Sweeney scene. And, you know, we, we really worked on, uh, on developing Shadow from the book into this adaption in, 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 onto screen um, because the character from the book, as iconic and great as he was, isn't going to translate exactly because you don't want to watch a man think every week. And, you know, right, uh, Neil writes this incredible inner monologue for Shadow, but that's not something, you know, we're doing on the show. Um, so we had to kind of add a few more layers, make him more vocal, give him some anxiety, some fear, some, some more emotions, um, and less blasé. You know, like Ian says, he's, he's uh, the protagonist, but he doesn't push any of the story. He's merely like a, a leaf in a stream being taken by the current. Um, but we just needed to add a little bit more, and if it wasn't for you know the notes and advice of these wonderful gentlemen here, I definitely wouldn't be sat here today. And so I definitely owe a, a lot to to this incredible team. I'm very grateful, very blessed. So are we. Yay! No. Nothing but love. <laughs> full of love. He's full of love. See what I did? Yeah. See what I did? Ian, you have some, some wonderful scenes with Cloris Leachman in the first handful of episodes. And I really just want you to tell me a story about working with Cloris Leachman. Cloris, what did, what did Cloris turn 90 when we shot, didn't she, on that week? Yeah. Well, when, we, when I kit. Ricky, excuse me. I'll talk about Cloris, thank you. You can talk about the other Zorias when you wish. And, uh, when I kissed her, she, she said, Is that it? <laughs> No tongues? No, no. Um, speaking of women's roles in the cast, um, the role of Bilquis is greatly expanded from the book. Um, as we spoke about before, the role of Laura is greatly expanded. Um, Neil, how much of what we see on screen, especially from those two women and how they play in the, in the story, is things you had thought but not been able to include? How much of it is, was Brian and Michael? How did that come about? Well, with, with Laura, um, Brian and Michael and I were talking from the very, very beginning about showing her backstory, about the fact that the novel is from Shadow's point of view. And it's very rare that I'm allowed to sort of nip out of his head. So we get to encounter Laura whenever she crosses Shadow's path. But we don't know what she's doing for the rest of the time. and. The idea of pushing Laura up to a, a significant co-star and, and telling, us, telling you all of that was something that we were in agreement on from the beginning. Um, with Bilquis, who is, whose, whose part is expanded, who uh, we get some fantastic stuff in season one, and if they let us do season two and season three, there's going to be more shenanigans of, of various kinds. Um, that really was Brian and Michael completely, and I, all I have to say is I love what they've done, and I love uh, the fact that we just have more and more Yatide on the screen. Yeah. Um, hey. Neil Gaiman just said that. I am geeking out. <laughs> Well, the, the stuff in, ep uh, I mean... You realize you did say her part got expanded. You know that. <laughs> I did. Couldn't resist that, Neil. No, I <laughs> ba boom. Thank you. <laughs> What's it like working with Ian McShane? 
<laughs> Dirty mind. <laughs> Clean heart. So, I, of course, season two is not yet, not yet greenlit, but I'm sure it will be, yes? Yeah. Write your congressman. From your ears to your mouth to ours ears. Um, have we thought about stuff for season two, who media might show up as? Um, like you said, Bilquis is, uh, you clearly have story in mind for her. What, what kinds of things can you vaguely tease about what we might see? Uh, season two is going to be largely uh, about Don't House on the Rock. Them. <laughs> tell them. Don't. That there's, we have, season one ends before we get to the House on the Rock. Season two is going to begin at the House on the Rock and things are going to happen. <laughs> um, and That's as far as I was going to go. Okay. <laughs> Things are definitely going to happen. Speaking of House on the Rock, who else has uh, selfies on the carousel? I know you two have ridden it, correct? Anyone else ridden the carousel at House on the Rock? Not yet, but no. we're hoping they will. Mm. They will. I, un I understood you actually played down the excitement of House on the Rock, though. So that's something I'm looking forward to, because you didn't think the audience would actually believe I, what you wrote. It's true. I actually, I, the House on the Rock is a... Okay, so in the book... There is a place called the House on the Rock in Wisconsin, which is described as being one of the most magical places in America and one of the most weird. Um, and it's a real place. A lot of people think I've made it up, but I didn't. And, but what I did wind up doing in the book was toning it down a bit <laughs> so that people would believe it. Has anybody here been to House on the Rock? Oh, wow. It's amazing, isn't it? You, it, it, it defies description. It's, it's, and I started leaving things out like the 100-person artificial orchestra and the giant carousel that's 50 foot high on which ancient Victorian dolls just go round and round staring balefully at you. <laughs> and, you know, with the... I, I think I may have mentioned the four horsemen of the apocalypse that hang from the ceiling in that room and... It's kind of impossible to describe. And it does have the biggest carousel in the world. And you're not allowed to ride on the biggest carousel in the world, except they let me. <laughs> and, and several years later, they let Brian. And the photographs of us on the biggest carousel show the happiest men in the world. <laughs> you would think we might have outgrown going round and round on carousels, but we have not. Amazing. There's, there's so much uh, that's in the book that is iconic to the book, the bone orchard, the, the buffalo. A lot of this is uh, created in the series with special effects, obviously. Uh, Ricky especially, you, you spend a lot of time wandering in the bone, in the bone orchard. Dreaming, sleeping. I basically sleep through but the what season. Is that like when you, <laughs> what is that like when you're actually shooting that? Is, are, is there anything around you? No, I mean, that's, that's, it's actually my first uh, kind of venture into blue screen, green screen. Um, so we have part of the sets made up, and then you're surrounded by a big blue uh, or green wall that they add all the kind of special effects in afterwards. So it's, it's kind of blind trust to the producers and the directors who are screaming at you from, from the set, uh, the side of the set. And so you have the conversation about what you're really going to see, um, you know, vaguely. And, you know, what am I looking at? What's going to be happening? Okay, what are the elements? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you're climbing a, 
a mountain of skulls. There's a mountain of skulls. There's ma skulls as far as you can see. You're like, okay, they're all the way over there. There's so many skulls. There's a huge tree. Wow, that tree's big. There's a buffalo. Oh my God, there's a buffalo. No, he's bigger. Oh, it's a big buffalo. Oh, wow. Magical. Cut. Was that, was that, was that, did that work? Did that, yeah, you know? And so, you know, it's, you let that inner child out as, a, as an actor and it's fun and you, you, you go searching in there and you just imagine all this craziness and this is, this is where I get excited about watching the show back is because I know what I did on set and I felt stupid. <laughs> but when I get to watch back, I get to watch back like a fan because none of that was there. So I see it for the first time after all the bells and whistles as Ian always puts it, are put on. And you know, that trust that I gave to them, they took that and they knocked it out the park. You know, we've got an incredible special effects and post team that add, you know, these wonderful effects that kind of make this show so magical. Um, and they, they, they add so much that I get to just sit back in awe and just go, wow, I'm part of something incredible. And, and those dream sequences really are fantastic. And you know, it's not too fantastical. It's it's all very current. It all pushes the story, and it's all relative. You know, it's it's nothing's nothing was in the book. You know, that that wasn't important, and nothing's going to be in the show. So, you know, when I when I started reading Neil's book, and I'm <coughs> flicking through the pages, going, "This is amazing! This is amazing! That's never going to happen. You can't do that." Okay, they have this, they do. You know, from Bilquis's scene to, to the dream sequences, you know, everything that you love in this book is going to be in the show and more. So I'm excited for those who don't know American Gods or Neil Gaiman's work. Congratulations, you're about to have your minds changed, blown, everything. All those fans that, that do know all of this work, it's, it's an incredible, you know, uh, piece, of, piece of work that, that Brian and Michael have been able to lift his beautiful words off a page and, and really produce something really quite magical and, and I, I, I feel as we've all said it literally I just call myself quoting you exactly the same I feel blessed to be a part of it it, it, it really is a blessing being a part of this incredible machine Right, and uh, I remember Ricky and Emily and I got to watch a couple of episodes together. A couple? A couple. <laughs> we binge-watched We binge-watched our, our show, yes, it happened. It was and dark out. It was. They told Emily to go home. <laughs> but, it, I mean, as a fan and a huge Neil Gaiman fan, I, you know, I'd read the book in 2001 when it came out. And um, it, it was so crazy sitting there watching it with Ricky and Emily, and we're like little kids in a candy store, just incredibly excited. And you're seeing those scenes that you uh, that I read all the way back in 2001, just lifted from the book. And so even our our fun introduction to a media, um, the amazing Gillian Anderson, all and, and all. all <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. And you're, you're seeing these things lifted from the book, but at the same time, um, I think you described it this way before, where you, you get to go down different hallways that, that you, know, you initially saw but kind of breezed past uh, in the book. You, you get to explore these a whole lot further. So, yes, we were the original bingers of the show, apparently. <laughs> we're going to go to oh, questions, yeah. and one, I'm going to ask one more, and then it's up to you guys, so get ready for that. Um, one of my favorite things about the book are the, the coming to America vignettes that are sprinkled throughout. Um, and that was, I was sure they weren't gonna make it in. Because they're, they're these beautiful little kind of postcards about the different gods and different times, but not, you know, they're off the main path. They're, they're in there and they're so perfect. Can you guys talk to me about 
was it always was it a no-brainer that you were going to keep them in? Um, which ones you picked versus which ones didn't make it into the first season? It wasn't so much a no-brainer. We just we loved them and we wanted to see them, and all it would take is millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> It was it was uh, one of the swords that Michael and I were very willing to fall on for the show because as we were looking at the scope of the show and how sprawling it was and how expensive it was to produce, both the studio and the network were like, let's get rid of the Coming to Americas because they don't have anything to do with the A story. And Michael and I just said no. <laughs> Repeatedly. We had yeah, to say no real. many, many times. Get some applause for that. And part of the, f the fun of that is by the time you get to episode seven, um, it's actually probably three quarters of it is the, the story, which in the book is Essie Tregowan and on TV is Essie McGowan because we moved her to Ireland from Cornwall. Um, but Essie's story intercuts with a current story and... and it would be fair to say that um, Brian and Michael got a lot of pushback from people going, well, this is weird. How can, you know, we're in the middle of this story and suddenly you're telling the story of a 17th century girl and what happened to her and how she was transported to America and, and so forth. And people would occasionally phone me up saying, do you think this is a good idea? And I would go, yes. It's a really good idea, and you should let them do this because it's really, really good. And then it got made, and suddenly everybody involved always loved it. They all always thought it was a really good idea. Now, there is nobody, I think, who could stand there and say, that wasn't a good idea. They, they loved it. I'm curious how many times they called you. <laughs> because they would try shit with us, and we were like, no, and then, uh, like, they would come around and say, well, Neil, we talked to Neil, and it was sort of like going to dad after mom had said no. <laughs> and uh, so that, 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 that confirms our suspicions that we were like, they fucking called Neil. <laughs> Excellent, all right, we're gonna go to some audience questions. Hi there. This is a very general question for the entire panel. It's just what attracted you to this material, both as an actor and, you know, as writers, both for Neil kind of with the initial writing of this and then for the two producers writers, what drew you to this? Well, I was drawn to the material because I moved to America in 1992 and thought I understood this country because I'd been watching its television and films since I was a little boy and I'd been writing stories set here and I'd been visiting and doing Comic Con and stuff and I thought, well, I, I understand America. And I came to live here and I was like, I, I have no clue. <laughs> this place is weirder than I ever imagined. And I would talk to other people living here and go, so, this thing they do where they drive the car out onto the ice as soon as it's frozen in the winter and then they take bets on when it's gonna go through. Isn't that weird? And they go, nope, that's how we do it here. Uh, I go, okay, I think it's weird. So, that accent. <laughs> so that was a kind of, uh, th that was really where it began, was me trying to understand 
the country, trying to understand the Midwest in particular, and trying to make sense of the immigrant experience, which was one that I was going through as, as, as a rather awkward English immigrant. Um, the gods were the perfect way of making that metaphor real. And so that was how I wound up writing this book. Should we go down the line or should we take another question? Um, I think go, go down the line right. quickly. What, what attracted you to the material? Well, uh, then, since you asked, I yes. really, <laughs> really like your book. I do. I did when I first read it. I remembered it vividly. And at the, you know, Brian called me up and said, so I'm thinking of doing American Gods. Are you interested? Yes! You know, <laughs> of course. Uh, it's uh, the stories are indelible, the characters I wanted to see and I want to see more of, and the subjects and themes are things that we think about and we talk about and I wanted to write more about. I, yeah, I mean, Michael, after the going back on the other story, <laughs> excuse me, I'm, yeah, I'm pulling rank here, okay? I'm the only one there that's a fucking god, okay? <laughs> Apart from Mrs. God over here. Oh, Let me finish! Oh, oh no, he didn't! Oh, yes, he fucking did. Oh, it's, it's just like the show. I'm, I'm in the middle Shut again. Up, Ricky, sit down. You're, you're passive, aren't you? Allegedly. You Allegedly. No, I mean, I worked with Michael, and when he was, we got that story before about being a script, and then I read the script. And when I said, Mr. Wednesday, I thought, it's a great part. Then I read the book, which I'd, I'd worked with Neil before. Well, not with him. We'd worked obliquely together because I did his, uh, the, the terrific film, actually, was made of Coraline which is his young adult book, you know, by, by the great Henry Selleck. Mr. Babinski he was. Mr. Babinski, yeah, the mouse orchestra. But um, it's just a great, great material. And when you read it, when you read it, you go, it's a blueprint for a great TV series. And for all the talk about, you know, the moralizing that's done in the show, the immigration aspects, the racial aspects, you're still making a television show which has to entertain. And it's not a polemic, it's not an op-ed, but it just happens to contain all those higher ideas which actually you do like to act about, you know, rather than it's not a procedural, it's not a medical show, it's not a cop show. And uh, the fact is that it was a trip to make, and I'd never seen it, the whole thing until I saw it down at Austin, and when I saw it on a big screen down at the South by Southwest about a month ago now, Rick, yeah? It was just, yeah, it was what, it's why we joined, as we say, in the business. You look at it and you go, yeah, it's really terrific. A lot of shows talk about pushing the envelope, this one does, and I do apologize deeply. My lady, Queen of Sheba. <laughs> I may have some powers to unexpand your, <laughs> your part next time we get together, uh, next year. Okay. I'll see you on the carousel, babe. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, yeah, I'm not, not sure. Yes, you not do. Are we still going down the line? Oh, okay. Well, so <laughs> are we still doing are, are we just doing one this? question? Uh, <laughs> uh, for, uh, I think that's the perfect segue to one of the things that attracted me uh, to the character is uh, the, just the idea of a, a female agency there. Um, there, there. There was such a power in, in Belquist, and there was such an ownership and no apologies about... Um, about the intimacy and about the sensuality, which I thought was really great. Um, and beyond it just being a chance to work with so many wonderful people, 
I, I th- <laughs> yeah, Michael Green, apparently, <laughs> specifically. Um, the, the, I mean, I think we all know by now I'm a huge geek. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking geek as in my first crushes were Data and Captain Picard, okay? So, yeah. <laughs> and they so, still are. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's be real. <laughs> um, but I, I was a huge Neil Gaiman fan. And it, it, I mean, just the idea that I'd get a chance to, to play in this sandbox. It never even occurred to me when I read that book. Um, this book, that book. Um, and it's, it's just been, it's really been a dream come true. You're a dream come true. Uh, for me, it was, it was uh, I was transported by this novel 16 years ago, and I love at its core it is about religious equality and religious tolerance and uh, the beauty of the immigrant story to be a stranger in a strange land and there to make that land better all through these fantastic characters. I found it incredibly moving. Um, and I'll just go quickly because I, I'll feel left out if I don't. Um, one of the best actors of our generation, two of the most incredible showrunners I've ever seen, one of the finest actors you're going to see on TV this year, Rockstar. Um, I had a quick question. In translating it from the page to film, was there anything that allowed you to like experiment or go in a new direction or do something new without spoiling it? We were mostly fidelitous to the novel and there were slight flourishes that we were allowed just in the in the translation um i'm excited for people to see the salim jinn story and the 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 beauty of that sex scene and uh which was not a small feat for to gay Muslim characters to have a beautiful, sophisticated sexual experience uh, and what it was like for us to visually give you an idea of what it's like to to take a god inside you. Uh, it felt like it was a wonderful metaphor. What is it, Michael, when he said, the, remember, playing the part, and he said, when you're doing the special effects, just give me a beautiful cock, okay? <laughs> I <lo> <laughs> yes. That's an actor, baby. <laughs> and we did. We did. It is beautiful. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming out. Um, my question kind of is, was more of a broad basis in terms of adapting the novel to film. Um, what were the conversations like in the beginning, in the room, when you're thinking of what we sh should we show, what images should we leave out? What is more important to show and kind of like what are some new images that we want to expound on in the, in the film? I, I think we just started with what do we love and what do we want to see and what do we need to see. Um, some of it was let's get it in the first season in case there's only one uh, because you never know. And uh, just how can we best tell the story? There was never we shouldn't do anything. And that, and that goes to our network and studio as well. They were... They all loved the book. They all wanted to see it. Even when we were talking about the coming to Americas, that was always about the realities of how are you going to make those things happen in the budgets you have. Um, but it just started with what, what are we excited about and how do we tell Shadow's journey? And then there's some talking about characters of what are their arcs going to be and really crystallizing Shadow's faith journey. 
going from someone who has nothing, believes in nothing, to neophyte, to believer, to zealot, to God. Um, we we just we fanboyed. Like we we got together and was like, "What do you love?" And so it was, I love it, everything. What yeah. do you love? Everything. I I love I love the point today where we were in, being interviewed by somebody and Brian started describing the chance to go and do things like write Laura's story as fan fiction. It was, he was like, "It's American Gods fan fiction," and the interviewer was like, "Well, hang on, you're a." You know, you're a highly paid showrunner and scriptwriter. This isn't fan fiction. And Brian's like, I'm a fan. This was fan fiction. The, the only difference is he spent 20 odd years having a career that lets him shoot it. So keep writing your fan fiction. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, so I have another question about your conversations, I guess. Uh, we know there's gods introduced in the show like Vulcan and Jesus um, that maybe were not actually mentioned so much in the book. So what were the conversations like, you know, Michael, Brian, Neil, uh, about introducing those characters on the show? Um, we always knew that we were going to open up the... I, I mean, the, the problem with writing a book is you have a limited number of pages and you have a limited number of words. And in the case of American Gods, when you hand in a book that is uh, 200,000 words long, they make you cut 20,000 of them just because it's too long anyway. And then 10 years later, you get to go back and put them in in the author's preferred text edition because <laughs> you can. Um, but you're, st you are, you know, you're fighting the fact that you have a limited number of things. So there were stories that I've told um, Brian and Michael about that didn't get in. There were things that I wanted to do that just there wasn't room for. Um, and at least one of those started them off on a, hey, we're going to put that in an episode. Um, I was talking to Brian uh, last night at dinner where he was talking to me about some stuff and I was saying, oh, you know that there were a whole bunch of Coming to Americas that I didn't write because the book got too big and they were getting grumpy with me. So, and I told him the plot of a couple of them and he was like, we will do those. We will do those. They're fantastic. I think, excuse me, I, I think also this is why you have director's cut. That'll be interesting if you have a director's cut because there's certain things. I mean, we make it sound like this was one gigantic love and it wasn't all the time. I mean, it was a tough shoot. For everybody. I mean, because they were committed, we were committed, and there were certain things that had to be left out which we shot, which you're always pissed off by now. Oh, certain things we had to reshoot. But you were always for a reason, which is to keep the story going forward, to keep their vision and their idea. And when I saw it, yeah, I mean, you may have been pissed off at the time because, you, you know, no actors want to redo scenes sometimes. You redo them at the time, but a month later you go, no way, right, Ricky? I, no, I, like we... <laughs> right, Ricky? Yeah. Carry on then. No, like he's talking about, say, the, the crocodile bar scene. You know, we, we completed that scene, and myself, uh, Ian, Pablo, you know, we're actors. We're like, we fucking nailed it. It was amazing. Why would I reshoot that? And then you see the notes, and you see what they're thinking, and the vision is larger. And, you know, we've been very blessed by Fremantle and Stars to, to allow us to go back and, and kind of redo some of this stuff. And 
you know, again, it's, it's handing that trust over to, to Brian and Michael, and they delivered. The, the scene is leaps and They still took my drum kit away. Which you I, yeah. Okay, you, basically, you, the reshoot, you missed out on Ian McShane playing the drums. <laughs> Maybe I that'll make play. the bonus material, because it was pretty outstanding. Um, but uh, you were still hilarious in the reshoot, though. You still, he still One day we're going to do a panel, oh, and he's going to say that, and we're just going to say, roll it. And someone's going to play, and you're going to get, like, six minutes of him playing the drums like a crazy person. <laughs> and it's amazing. Hi. Um, I just want to say thank you to uh, Neil, Brian, and Michael for writing women so well. Um, I feel like you've betrayed them. <laughs> uh, I know, however, that American Gods isn't um, a book that is you know, very female dominant as well. You know, we have lots of them in the cast. Um, you guys did tease a little bit about expanding more female roles. Can you talk more about what we're going to see? And um, hopefully that encourages more. <laughs> it, it was definitely frustrating for me when I was writing it. I, I got my sort of, my, 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 my writing women fix by writing Coraline at the same time that I was writing American Gods. So here was a book with basically nothing but women in it, and Mr. Bobinski, obviously. Um, but it was, it was genuinely frustrating that I had these amazing women characters, and then we didn't get to spend very much time with them. So I was, I was so thrilled that, particularly, I think, with Laura, just that we got, we got to go and live in her head and we got to go and see what she was thinking and who she was. So uh, specific answers, Laura is greatly expanded. The fourth episode is essentially a retelling of the entire story of the show from her perspective. Uh, we have we, another episode. We saw somebody, t somebody interviewed us today who mentioned that he'd accidentally watched episode four first. <laughs> and uh, he said, it's a really good first episode in case you're wondering. And <laughs> we intended it as a, as a companion pilot and treated it as such. Uh, there's another episode that, um, sorry, I'll spoil it, but these two gentlemen aren't even in. I, um, what? what? <laughs> Remember when we told you that we were only doing seven episodes? There was another one? Does my agent know? Ricky. Um, I was in one Ricky. scene, no, I was actually in one scene. Ricky. And of Ricky. course, uh, the character of Bill Quist with After you today, we have uh, Julian Anderson as media, oh, sorry. still happening, still happening. <laughs> Uh, we have media. We have Kristen Chenoweth as Easter, and if we get It'll our stuff on season two, <laughs> if we do get our season two, she has you promised she will come back. <laughs> They're still doing this bit. This could go on for a long time. All right, I think we should give the cast and creators of American Gods a big hand. <laughs> Remember, it premieres Sunday, April thirtieth on Stars.